Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July 22nd, 2015. This is episode 1833 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Friday! 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 It's been a long time since I busted off with a real Friday, Friday, Friday. And a couple of you have been hitting me with it on Twitter and Facebook, and I figured I would give you one. So it is Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for the monster show of the week, not monster trucks on Saturday, but on Friday, 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 monster questions for the amazing expert council. I have a big, full dugout for you today of the expert council. We're going to talk about the ins and outs on lard with Erica Strauss, an update on Wheaton Labs from Paul Wheaton himself, the Duke of Permaculture. Chef Keith's going to talk to us about something totally different we've never talked about. And it's probably because I don't eat a lot of it. It's not good for me, and I'm just not a nut about it, but I know a lot of you are. How about making your own ice cream? Yeah, Chef Keith is going to talk about that. It's Friday. Let's have some fun. Michael Jordan going to ask a, answer a question on Top Bar versus Landstroff from a person that says, My Landstroff is blowing up. i got bees everywhere. And my Top Bar is like, eh, it's barely making it. What's the deal? i uh, got a question on dealing with leftover debris from logging activities for Ben Falk. Paying off student loan debt the smart way with John Pugliano. And dealing with the low-carb diet yo-yo from Gary Collins. And then I have a very sincere question to, uh, to back clean up with from a person asking us, can we ever really be free in this nation again or anywhere on this planet? A somber question, but I think I have a not-so-somber answer, an answer that might make you realize freedom really is a state of mind. It's not that simple. But it is that factual. We'll, we'll cover that when we get there. Before we do, let's take a look at the year that was the episode we have in 1833. Alex Shrugged has up for us today, too, the child labor laws and those gosh darn illegal aliens. As though you thought that was a new thing. We have banking on disaster, which is the one I'm going to read. And in other news, the Barlow lens is invented. It increases the magnification. It corrects the focal point of colors for precise viewing. It will remain a popular lens into the modern day. General Santa Ana overthrows Mexican President Bucamente. Hooray! For a while, it looks like he will restore the constitutional government to Mexico, but no such luck. And the American Whig Party is established. As the real party politics begin, Henry Clay and Daniel Webster unify the party against the Democrats. And Andrew Jackson, eventually the Whigs will be replaced by the Republican Party under Abraham Lincoln. I'm going to read Banking on Disaster because it talks about, well, central banks and Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson won his bid for the second term as U.S. president, promising to rid the country of the second bank of the United States. If you will recall, the first bank was chartered by Alexander Hamilton, who used the bank to control the money supply to provide the means for the U.S. government to pay off its war debt. However, the Jeffersonian vision of government did not include banks. Jefferson believed that bankers were dishonest people whose only aim was to keep farmers in their grip and squeeze. So when it came time to renew the bank's charter, the Jeffersonian Republicans let it lapse right before the War of 1812. As the need for ready cash soared to meet the needs of war, President Madison scrambled to set up another bank. Thus, in 1818, the second bank of the United States was established. Unfortunately, the bank president was an idiot. So during the Panic of 1819, Andrew Jackson almost lost his farm. Jackson doesn't forget old wounds. The current federal bank president, Mr. Biddle, is competent, but he also is a big wheeler dealer. Jackson could smell something bad, 
So he tries to withdraw all the money from the bank. All the money. He declares the bank unconstitutional. It pays off the entire national debt. Every last penny with more to spare. But not before Mr. Biddle tries to bring down the House. President Jackson will avoid most of the consequences of his actions. The federal banking system will be turned over to the states in 1837. Just in time for Jackson's successor, Martin Van Buren, to take one for the team. Several banks will fail as cash liquidity dries up and economy grinds to a halt. Wildcat banks will spring up out there amongst the wildcats. Unregulated and probably non-existent banks will set up the need uh, for the needs at the moment and then fade away for years to come. Very few financial instruments will be more worthless than a federal note. My take by Alex Shrugged, was all this Jackson's fault? No, but like most people of the time, he didn't understand how banking works. If for no other reason a federal bank is required to regulate the massive spending the government the size of the United States engages in even in Jackson's time. Collecting enough cash to buy pencils for the federal government can tie up money for long periods of time and then suddenly dump large amounts of cash into the market to make the purchase. The pencil market would go into a frenzy to meet the demand and then collapse utterly. Don't even ask about the eraser market. Some sort of banking system is needed that can hold tax funds and parcel them out into a sensible and generally non-disruptive fashion. Providing loans to state banks in the meantime would help regulate the money supply, if done prudently, would help the economy over most of the short-term problems. But wait, what am I talking about? It's the government. Forget I said anything. I lost my head. I'm saying a federal banking system is needed for a large country such as the USA, but it needs to be revisited periodically. Setting up the time limit on the renewal of the charter didn't work for us before. Maybe there's no way for a federal banking system to work without a lot of suffering and crying and gnashing of teeth. It's just too much money. Maybe limiting government obligations to an amount that the current living taxpayers could conceivably repay makes sense. But again, it's the government. Um, or, or we could actually understand money and how money works. And then we could build a system that is based on coding that actually regulates and controls monetary systems into a known. And since they're a monetary known, we can actually bank on the system working the way it's supposed to because, gee, math doesn't lie and algorithms actually work. I'm just saying. And there's a variety of ways in which that could be administered. It doesn't have to be. I know it sounds like Bitcoin. I'm saying we should use Bitcoin as a national currency. I'm not. I'm saying that there's a variety of ways that that type of thing could be done. But if you had fixed a fixed system where there was a known cap on the currency, a known logarithmic growth of the currency, a known infinite fractionalization of the currency, there could be no cash shortage. That's why Bitcoin works and works infinitely. If Bitcoin became so deflated that one Bitcoin was worth $100,000, you could still take a hundred thousandth of a single Bitcoin and buy a dollar's worth of stuff with it. And if you shortened it more, you can just fractionalize it down further. I think there's a limit on it that's a practical limit that they set up with Bitcoin. But you get my point. There's no reason that has to be the case. We can take down any type of currency to any infinite number of fractions if we're not worried about it being printed. And since only 3% of the U.S. monetary supply even exists as printed or coin money anymore, why do we even care? Why do we even care? I think there's more than one way to run the economy of a nation the size of the United States and have freedom and liberty for all without necessarily having any central authority over it. I think you could just have a system. Imagine this. Imagine you had a huge basketball court, like multiple squares of tens of miles, huge, 
with baskets everywhere and many, many balls. And everybody goes out to play basketball, but competition's only who can make the most baskets. You're not blocking and defending. Everybody can go out and make baskets. Everybody can take the opportunities that are available. Some baskets are high, some are low, some are better, some have to devise systems so that they can make more baskets. But if the rules are the same for everybody, if the system is a fixed system with a, with a, a, a established logarithmic growth or a controlled growth or a controlled contraction that's to a known, then guess what? It can work without people screwing with it. And the market actually can dictate reality. This was impossible in Andrew Jackson's time. He knew the bank was evil. He just didn't have a solution for it yet. It's just my thoughts. And with that, uh, let's uh, hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. Hey, have you ever thought about making a knife from scratch but just felt it was too complicated? Well, at KnifeKits.com, anyone can learn to make great knives, even me. From the total newbie to the master bladesmith, they have everything you need to make great knives, kydex sheets, and more. Find it all at KnifeKits.com. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, your first call of the day. This one is for Erica on large. Somebody's got a whole bunch of uh, pastured pig fat and wants to know what to do with it. Erica, take it away. Hello, TSP. Erica here calling in for the expert council to answer a question about one of my favorite things in the world, lard. Uh, Don from Maine wrote in, he has 150 pounds of glorious heritage pork fat from three hogs he just had slaughtered, and he wants to know what to do with all that fat. Well, Don, one of the first things I want to say is congratulations. You are in possession of one of the best things in the whole world. Pure, unadulterated pig fat, naturally raised, um, is truly one of the great, great culinary items in the whole world. Here's what you need to know to render that fat into lard and a few tips on storing and using your lard. Let's start with a little bit of background. First off, I just want to say it's important to distinguish the kind of lard that Dawn is going to make that I imagine most of the TSP community is going to make, which is to say homemade, home-rendered lard from pigs that are you know, raised in a way that we can all support, right? That's different in a few key ways from large-scale commercially produced lard. Um, in my experience, you can buy lard in any large supermarket. In my area, it's generally sold under the Spanish name Manteca. It's usually in the same aisle as you know Mexican and ethnic food specialties. But uh, com the commercial product, Manteca, the commercial lard, is typically hydrogenated. Um, it's the same process they use to make margarine. And sometimes it can be bleached or mixed with various preservatives or emulsifiers. It's a much more processed product than what I'm going to be talking about today. As a homemade product, lard is, you know, it's very honest. It's, it's old-fashioned, home and artisan-made lard. It's trans-fat-free. It's um, actually not as high in saturated fat as you might think. 
It's got actually less saturated fat than butter. It's a very rich source of vitamin D. And it's an excellent fat for folks who are following any of the sort of traditional foods diets like paleo or primal. Lard has also got a relatively high smoke point. It's not as high as some of the tropical oils like palm oil, but it's higher than a lot of our common cooking oils. Um, It smokes at about 375 degrees, which means that you can use it in higher heat applications and it still retains that healthful quality. Lard used to be, along with suet, which is beef fat, a major industrial fat, but uh, fear of saturated fats and the cost of lard and various low-fat dietary trends, along with some pretty effective marketing by the shortening people, which uh, denigrated lard as a hardship food or a poverty food, have caused lard's popularity to really ebb over the years. But um, one area where lard has always really endured is in the production of pastries. Pastry chefs have sought out really high high-quality lard for a long time, and this is because the fat crystals in lard are unusually large, which lends a sort of characteristic flaky texture to pie crusts made with lard. The past decade or so, as we've gotten back to sort of a traditional foods movement and as people are starting to question the dietary advice to stay away from anything fat-related, has seen lard sort of coming back into popularity. More chefs are rediscovering it from a culinary perspective, and a lot of regular folks um, are starting to see the advantages of it too. There are three basic grades or types of lard. Um, The first is leaf lard. It's made from the fat that surrounds the kidney of the hog or the pig. It has the mildest flavor, and leaf lard is really ideally suited to delicate pastry production where you want sort of the the whitest, most neutral flavor fat. You don't get any sort of porky quality in rendered leaf lard. Next up is the fat back, which is, you know, it's basically the subcutaneous fat of the pig. It's, it's a hard fat, um, that's found between the muscle and the skin. And most, the vast majority of the fat that comes off of a pig is fat back. Rendered fat back is mild enough to be used for most culinary needs, including baking, but it can be a little bit stronger in flavor than leaf lard, especially if your pig was fed strongly flavored foods like offal or, you know, God forbid fish in the months leading up to slaughter. And then finally, there's cull fat, which is a little bit different. It's a soft, lacy membrane of fat that surrounds the digestive organs and the intestines. And um, there's not much cull fat in a pig compared to fat back. So your slaughterhouse may not even have set that call fat aside for you. But if they did, it's not rendered the way leaf or fat back is. It's used as is to wrap force meats or sausage. It's kind of like a roll-up fat casing for sausage. Think of it as a sort of melty fat net that you can wrap around any meat that you want to have a little extra moisture and fat as it cooks. When it comes to making homemade lard, there are several techniques to render the lard. You can use a crock pot, you can use your oven, you can do it on the stove, etc. But the technique is basically the same. So I'm just going to tell you the technique I recommend, and then you can adapt this basic concept to whatever method of heat and quantity of lard makes sense for you. The basics are always to start with trimming and rinsing your fat. You don't want blood or excess meat in the fat you're rendering. Then you want to finely chop uh, or grind your fat. It's really not too much work to hand chop like three or five pounds of fat back. But if you're rendering a batch of 25 pounds or all 150 pounds of your fat, you're going to save a lot of labor by running very cold or even frozen fat through the coarsest setting on a meat grinder. Uh, You can do this at home if you have a meat grinder and sometimes your butcher 
culture will do this for you if you ask. The smaller the pieces of fat you start with as you render for lard, the more lard you're going to get and the more evenly your fat is going to render out, which means less chance of overcooking your fat and getting a darker color and a porkier, more roasted flavor. We're trying to avoid that. I do batches of about five pounds typically because that's an easy quantity for rendering in the crock pot, which is how I do it. But if you want to do one big mega rendering, you just scale up and use a large pot. In any event, you want to put the fat in your crock pot or pot or big roasting pan and add just enough water to sort of coat the bottom of the pot. For five pounds in a crock pot, I usually use about a half cup, maybe a little bit more of water. This water is there to stop the fat from burning before it starts to gently melt and render out. The water itself will cook out of the fat as you render your lard. You want it to. You don't want any water in the final product, but you don't need to worry about that. It will cook out as you render your lard. And then you just heat your fat gently. You want to go for kind of a low heat and watch your fat as it begins to melt, especially if you're rendering on the stovetop. You want to give your fat a little stir periodically just to keep everything melting evenly. The goal here is to gently melt the fat and to separate out the fat from any meat or residue or cracklings, but without overly browning any of that residue or crackling. You'll hear the water evaporate out. That's normal. It'll be sort of a snap, crackle, pop kind of sound. Um, but you don't want your lard to start bubbling away like crazy. So gentle heat makes for milder lard. And it typically takes me about two hours to melt five pounds of lard in the crock pot. But depending on what size batch you're doing, your time might be a little more, a little less. When the lard is melted, you want to strain it still hot through a paper towel or cheesecloth lined mesh strainer and just strain it directly into perfectly clean, dry, wide mouth mason jars. Lid your jars with standard two-piece lids and then just allow your lard to cool at room temperature. The porky fatty bits that are left over should be a kind of you know, pale color, maybe a little bit golden, but not a deep golden color. You can return these to your pot and cook them until they're a deep golden brown and then you just use them like cracklins. You know, guys, if you have any specific questions about how to adapt this basic lard rendering technique to the gear you have at home, just leave a comment under today's show notes and I'll do my best to sort of customize an answer for you. But that's the basic idea. You know, you grind, melt, and strain. Very easy. In terms of storage, lard is naturally very shelf stable. It lasts months and months at cool room temperature, years in the fridge, and probably more or less indefinitely in the freezer. There's not much I can recommend to extend lard natural shelf life. Don't pressure can it. Don't do anything like that. Just keep the lard as cool as possible. I keep a jar on my counter, room temperature. It never goes bad. Um, I certainly use it up before it would. And I then keep backup jars in my freezer. In the event of a power outage, lard that's been in the freezer can thaw and be refrozen without any loss in quality. So it's really quite bulletproof that way. Just keep it as cool as you can. I understand sometimes freezer space is at a real premium, but um, the cooler you can keep your lard, the longer it will last. In terms of using all that lard, you know, the sky's the limit. Lard is, for my money, the premier all-purpose cooking fat. When you think about where you can use lard, it can help to remember that shortening like Crisco was basically an attempt to make a cheaper lard substitute. So just like margarine attempts to duplicate butter, Crisco attempts to duplicate lard. And in both cases, the original fat is way, way better than the sequel. So any recipe that calls for shortening will be better if made with lard. 
Lard makes for incredibly flaky pastry, so pie crust, biscuits, anything you want to have that light, flaky quality, all better with lard. Well-rendered lard won't have that strong or porky flavor, so it's totally okay to use lard in sweet applications. I even use lard for making cookies. Um, it's also ideal for deep frying because it's a very stable fat and it doesn't smoke or break down at frying temperatures. So it's, I think it's actually healthier to deep fry in lard than in a vegetable oil like canola that's going to break down a little bit easier. The results when you deep fry with lard are exactly what you want to. The absolute best fried chicken in the world is cooked in lard. You can also use lard in place of oil for sautéing, searing, or roasting. I typically fry my eggs in a mix of about half lard or bacon grease and half butter. If you're cooking a steak or a pork chop in a cast iron skillet, use lard for that initial sear. You'll be really happy you did. And for a side, try cutting up some potatoes and tossing them in melted lard. Season with a little salt, black pepper, and a couple tablespoons of chopped rosemary and roast your potatoes at you know, about 375 until they're tender all the way through. They'll get super crispy. You'll have the best roast potatoes ever. When you think about how to cook with your lard, don't limit yourself to kind of grandma's traditional biscuits kind of food. People all over the pork eating parts of the world have been using lard for millennia. So it's a part of traditional foods from all over the world. Um, Eastern Europe, for example, it's common to spread a little bit of lard on a hearty bread as a snack, like you might do with butter. Just add a little salt and a few pickles or thinly shaved onions, and you've got an easy bar-type snack that's very nice to have with a pilsner. Variations on this kind of thing are found in Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic. Our friends in Mexico traditionally prefer lard over any other fat. Authentic Mexican tamales pretty much require lard. I swear by lard in my flour tortillas. Pork shoulder cooked low and slow in lard, just cooked right in the lard, makes some of the best carnitas you're ever going to have. And in China, lard is one of the most common fats still, especially in the countryside where the diet is fairly traditional still. Um, I use lard a lot when I'm stir frying. If you want to make any Chinese stir fried dish taste a little bit more authentic, you can start by browning some garlic and ginger and lard and going from there. So you've got tons of options when it comes to cooking. Lard will slip into your everyday cooking very easily, no matter what kind of food you like to make. And then outside of culinary uses, lard is also incredibly useful. One of my most surprisingly popular blog posts at my, my blog site, NW Edible, details how I tried lard as a skin moisturizer and discovered it's really ideal for folks with sensitive skin. So if you have dry, rough skin on your elbows or your heels, or if you or the ladies in your life want baby soft skin, I totally recommend straight lard as a skincare moisturizer. Lard can also be used in homemade soap. Soap. soap is made through the chemical reaction of a fat like lard and a strong alkali. So if you have lard and sodium hydroxide lye, um, drain cleaner on hand, you can make a very decent soap without too much difficulty. And then historically, lard has also been used as a lubricant for industrial uses like machine cutting tools and bearings. So in a survival situation where modern petroleum-based lubricants aren't available, lard would be a very good all-purpose farm lubricant to have on hand as well. I mean, I really can't say enough. You will find a million uses for the lard that you are about to render from your 150 pounds of wonderful pork fat, on. So I hope this gets you started with some good ideas about how to render that lard and use it around your homestead. If you have any additional questions, just leave a comment in today's show notes and I will do my best to answer. Again, guys, this is Erica from NW Edible. Thanks for the great question, Dawn. You guys keep those questions coming. I look forward to talking with you again in a couple of weeks.
as is typical, and now I'm hungry. Uh, let's go right into the uh, the next question. We uh, have just our, uh, you know, we have about twice a month, we have Paul Wheaton update us on what's going on at Wheaton Labs up in the wilds of Montana. And Paul's got a lot of really great stuff happening, and his system is really beginning to be formed out. But he's got a long way to go, and he talks about that today and talks about a realistic understanding of how long it takes to implement a massive, large-scale permaculture system, multi-person community, multiple fiefdom community, uh, like he's building. So, Paul and uh, Jocelyn, take it away. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from permies.com with another update from Wheaton Laboratories. I'm here with Jocelyn Campbell. Say hi, Jocelyn. Hi. <laughs> so, uh, getting through the list quickly, uh, I want to say that we're under construction. So we've had people come by and they're like, well, you know, they want to see all the permaculture already done and everything. And it's like, I think we've got seven more years to go at the rate we're going. And and I kind of feel a lot like, the, like my obsession with permaculture started with gardening many decades ago. And, and then I wanted more space and I wanted more soil and more sun. And then I got that and then I wanted more and more. And so here we are. When we arrive, it's like, no, I want everything to be perfect, and and that's going to take years. Yeah. Well, and your focus has been on the Wafati design and experimenting with that on, on rocket stoves, rocket mass heaters, earthworks, and we we wanted to create a lot of hugel culture, which in some cases took us two years to build because they were massive 12-foot berm hugel cultures. So some of those things have taken a lot more time to get the infrastructure in place before we just start gardening or growing much food. So I think I think people are still a little bit surprised we don't have more food systems here yet. But the focus has been different and there's been lots done in these other areas. We're building a lot of soil, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it comes from visiting so many farms and gardens where people are like I want to do permaculture, and they've already got a bunch of stuff planted, and it's like, okay, step one, rip out all that stuff that you've got growing that's so beautiful and doing so well, because we need to now add texture to the landscape, and so it's kind of like, do your earthworks first, and so we've got a lot of property that we haven't done any earthworks to yet, and then for the places where we have done earthworks, then we're kind of trying to build soil. Yeah. So. And, and all the buildings that go with all the people we want to have here. Right now we have lots of pioneer species. And so when people are here, it's like, okay, I'm looking for the conventional garden plants. And we do have a lot of that, but they're mixed in with a lot of pioneer species building soil. Um, we've start, we've got lots and lots of trees that have started from seed. Yeah, um, that's exciting. I, I, I love, uh, we, we visited Kai's uh, apricot forest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but apples and apricots seem to be the things we've seen lots of this year so far that we've been able to identify. Um, we have water on the lab, uh, uh, complete with a pump. We have three wells that have water in the bottom of the well. And, of course, we've got to get through the summer to find out, like, okay, did we find, like, a real source of water, like the real groundwater? Because it's all a bit of a mystery. You, you, you get down there, and it's like, mm-hmm. okay, there's water down there. We're pumping it up. Mm-hmm. We're also going to start setting up a bunch of solar pumps so that we can have water flowing all over the lab uh, year-round. Um, uh, people are drinking the water that we have. Um, but and we'll probably do lab testing of the water um, next spring. I think spring is the perfect time to test water because that's when it's going to be the funkiest. It's the well that we have right now that we're currently pumping water out of that people are drinking out of is probably about twenty some feet deep, maybe twenty five feet deep, something like that. 
Um, and so Jim has been drilling these wells by hand, and he's got a workshop coming up on August 5th, uh, a well drilling workshop. He, yeah, Jim is a smart, hardworking guy, and he's learned a lot about drilling wells um, just to get this going. And so he, I think he'd be awesome to learn from at that. Yeah, I think he has mm-hmm. now drilled six or seven wells, and mm-hmm. three of them have water in them. Right. And so, and I think the next one he's going to be drilling is going to be on a fairly high spot, so that way we can start to get water that will like. Maybe be a like a creek for um, for all of. I mean, this is what Sepp Holzer did. Sepp Holzer's land was totally dry, and then he brought in water from a well. Um, and I do think we're going to do a bunch of stuff with bringing in water for a creek using permaculture techniques. But that's going to again take years. Yeah, and and with the solar pump, he wants to set up. Jim has a background in electronics, so he he knows his stuff there too. Yeah, he's uh, he's designing some circuit boards for some interesting things. He's thinking about doing a Kickstarter. Oh, yeah, awesome. He wants me to support it. It sounds really fascinating. The compost hot water system down at the showers, uh, not very hot this year, and but I'm not giving up. And and so I, I think that we're, you know, what I've been doing is I've been screwing myself by not putting enough nitrogen into the system in the beginning. And I want a compost pile that's going to last like um, five months. And, uh, th- and so it's like, okay, it'll be a cooler system. It'll be only 140, but it will last for – and I think I've been skimping on the nitrogen. And we don't exactly have a lot of nitrogen sources here. I mean, it's not like we have a CAFO and then we can go, like, out there and get a few truckloads right. of poop or something. Right. And we gotta we got to build our ecosystems still. And so – but I, right. I'm not giving – in the, in the meantime, um, we had the appropriate technology course, and one of the things that they did is they built a rocket hot water system uh, out there. And so now you got to go build a fire. To, to have hot water for a shower at the shower shack. But right. people are happy that they can get hot water that way. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh, we have renters. It's going. It's happening. We've got a resort manager here now. And uh, although this is not a resort, it's like what we're talking about for spaces is going to be a step up or a step two steps up from camping. Sure. So we have people staying in Oafati, people staying in the teepee with the rocket mass heater, uh, people staying in the porta cabin, uh, which is also called the love shack, um, and things like that. We've got little structures here and there, and Janet is renting those out. Yeah, I think it's a great example of multiple diverse income models for a um, property, permaculture property, and and little fiefdoms too. Um, Janet's able to create a fiefdom out of this and and share the revenue with us. Right, that's a Salatin style fiefdom, where it's right. like you got forty mm-hmm. business models overlaid on the same land, and so mm-hmm. she's got that going on. I think it's really brilliant. Mm-hmm. She's also set up something that she calls "Choose Your Own Adventure." Mm-hmm. So she's got a list of like a hundred different things that people could do when they're here, and so then you. She exchanges emails with people before they come out, and that person says, I want to drive the excavator. I want to carve a wooden spoon. I want to go on a wild edibles walk. And so she arranges that with the ants that are here now and the other residents. So, uh, and, and that can be an, in a further income stream for other people's fiefdom. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's listed at, we had a separate page. If you, if you sign up for the, we call it the seriously excited about permaculture pampering. So if you go to the separate page, uh, then if you do it through the separate page, then you get the tour and you get other goodies. But we're also listed out on Airbnb. She, I mean, I'm just excited that she, that we've got like a, this lovely business model and I'm actually seeing income from her efforts. It's awesome. 
Ant Village. There's one spot left at Ant Village. Yes. Um, uh, so we've got 11 out yes. of 12 ants. Uh, a, a few of them are making a run for the Ant Village Challenge to get their plot for Evers. And, um, Number 11 should be arriving later this month or next month. So they're getting a bit of a late start. But uh, it'll be exciting to meet them and have them join join us here. There's lots of building going on up there. Uh, Evan is posting lots of pictures at thepermies.com. And Jesse is posting lots and lots of videos. And so we can see lots of the stuff that's that's happening up there. But if nothing else, it's just a joy to go up there. Uh, the, the junk pole fence thing, what Kai is doing with Gates is just amazing and beautiful. Yeah. We still have lots of people sending donations of cash and gifts um, to support the ants and gappers here, which I just want to give a big shout out to people doing that. That's pretty awesome. It makes everyone feel very special here. It seems like we get a care package from Sue Ba about every week. <laughs> it's like the box looks exactly the same. You open it up and there's all kinds of stuff in there for everybody. Shoot. Uh, and she's in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, she had she had sent a lot in in a huge huge amount just in postage, let alone everything else she had sent. So yeah, uh, lots of the food systems that are being built on Ant Village are now um, pumping out food. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then of course I, I I don't know when you go up there now the thing I enjoy the most is that amazing berm with the with the tunnel through it that Evan yeah. built yeah. and then Kai made the fence like thing or it looks like something out of Game of Thrones or something oh and they name everything <laughs> uh, I I couldn't even try and tell you all the names of their things the community that is formed up there is amazing they're extremely tight knit. They, they they support each other. Uh, it's, it's it's awesome, and I think it's because it's ant program instead of a gapper program. We have attracted a certain kind of person, mm-hmm. and so much more industrious, uh, crazy industrious. It's been it's been amazing. Uh, on, on that note, Evan and Jesse are currently taking on gappers, and so I know that Evan will provide food, um, and uh, he's got two gappers. On his land that have been there, like uh, one of them has been there three months now, maybe two months. Right. And, and the other one's been there like seven months. Uh, and just a reminder, Gappers is our version of Woofer. Instead, Gapper is goofy about permaculture. So that's oh, yeah. that's just our version of someone who wants to come and learn about these things. So we just finished up a PDC, an appropriate technology course. And during the appropriate technology course, uh, I think the pe- thing that people liked the most from that was that was the welding. Everybody got a chance to do a lot of welding. Yeah, that and, was huge. Yeah. And so there's a new door for the batch box system down at the shopatorium. Um, and welded, Erica. Welded instead of a fire hazard door. <laughs> yeah. Much better. And then uh, Erica was here. Erica Wisner was here. And she came because she wanted to build her welding skills. And so she made this amazing, tiny, indoor wood cook stove with rocket technology. So it burns very, very clean, very, very hot, very efficiently. And and then had a lot of welding and a lot of insulated stuff inside the welded box that she made. Because the, the welding that she did was just dominantly a frame. She was very excited to do that, partly as one of the follow-ups she'd promised in her Kickstarter. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. she did a Kickstarter. It's mm-hmm. all done now. And we've got our new book, uh, yeah, very... The Rocket Mass Heater Builder's Guide. It is an excellent book. Yes. Uh, the solar food dehydrator, I I mean, it's a design of solar food dehydrator. I think that I'm going – it's a simple design. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that we're going to build the bigger one 
uh, soon. Right. Well, I think Tim covered so much technology in the course and covered so much of the design and science behind it that they built the beginning types of things like beginning solar cookers, beginning solar food dehydrator. And he said, look, now you know how to build the simple versions, build a better one. He, um, People loved his instruction. So uh, the 4-DVD set that I've been working on, the Rocket Mass Heater 4-DVD set, the new one, which also would come with an 8-DVD set if you include the old DVDs. Um, uh, DVD 3 is 100% done. DVDs 2 and 4 we're, uh, are about 96% done right now. And DVD 1 is 70% done. Uh, we're hoping that we're going to have these out to the people that have paid for the digital download around August 5th to 10th, somewhere around in there. And then if people want to jump on that bandwagon, you can go to richsoil.com slash preorder. Um, all right. Yeah. Phew. I, we're out of time. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Bye. Um, I'll tell you what, Paul, when you talk about people coming and going, where's all the permaculture? And, you know, you're only a few years into developing a system and you're in a harsh, dry climate. You're cold, mine hot. I feel your pain, to quote Bill Clinton, right? I mean, people have an unrealistic expectation at the development path of large-scale permaculture projects, especially in harsh environments, remote environments, et cetera. There's only so much that can be done at a time. And I, like Paul, started out as a gardener, and I became a really good gardener. I mean, I could grow, people were like, you can grow stuff on a sidewalk, and I could. And I don't do much of it anymore. Even every time I take a stab at it, I just, I don't, I don't have it in me anymore. I want to build large-scale systems that are self-maintaining, that all I have to do maybe is through the worst part of the year, make sure they're irrigated a little bit. And to do that does take a lot of time, and it takes a lot of dedication. And uh, even with a lot of help, it takes a lot of time. We've learned that uh, in many different instances over the years and working with others on projects and what we've done with Permaethos, what I've done here, what I did in Arkansas. Uh, I think gardening is a fine thing, and I think everybody should do it. But I can tell you that I've gotten to a point where I'm not sure that I'm going to do it, and I might be doing most of my production like that in the near future with, you guessed it, aquaponics for uh, reasons that will come in the future. With that, let's get into your uh, next one. I have a question for Keith Snow on making ice cream. Keith, take it away. Hey, Matt, it's Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. Let's talk about ice cream, dude. So, um, Cherry Garcia, yeah, that's, uh, that's some good, good tasting stuff. I've always been a pretty big fan of Ben and Jerry's and also some of the other premium ice cream brands, um, out there. Now, when you're talking about making ice cream at home, you're going to need to make an ice cream base. And this is, um, some people get a little thrown off here, but it's, it's quite simple. And I'm going to post, uh, I'm going to give Jack a link to put in the show notes on this episode. So you go to the Survival Podcast for this episode. You'll see a link there. It'll click over to my site, and I'll post the recipe. Uh, it's very simple. It's an ice cream base, a couple eggs, um, some sugar, some heavy cream, some milk. The interesting thing about it is um, the way it's put together, and you need to temper the egg yolks, and that is to incorporate beaten Eggs, well, eggs, not egg yolks, beaten eggs with the sugar, and you whip it together with a whisk separately, just the eggs and the sugar, until it gets to what's called the ribbon stage. It'll start to um, have a very pale um, color to it, and at that point, um, you're going to take milk and cream that have been heating 
in a little saucepan on the stove when they reach about 140 degrees, and you'll need a little stick thermometer for this. Then you'll temper, um, and that means just to pour a little bit into the egg mixture, whisk it around, a little bit more, whisk it around. Do that three or four times, and then pour um, the mixture back into the sauce pot, and you're going to keep whisking it. And you don't want to crank the heat here. You don't want to scorch the bottom. So slowly you'll bring it up to about 175 degrees. And you need to watch this with a thermometer. You don't want to bring it to 190 because you'll affect um, the final outcome. You get to around 170, 175. You want to keep it there for about 30 seconds. That's going to make sure that you're pasteurizing your eggs. At that point, that mixture needs to cool off. And now you've got um, an ice cream base. We'll talk about ice cream machines and makers and all that in just a second. But when you have that base, then you can add all types of things like chunks of chocolate and uh, dark sweet cherries and a little bit of vanilla. And there's your Cherry Garcia. Um, you can make a million flavors, blackberry. I mean, let your, let your imagination run wild. The thing to keep in mind is um, this base does have some eggs in there, and that definitely will help the mouthfeel. And the mouthfeel is everything. You know, when you buy gelato um, or a premium quality ice cream, you're after that true mouthfeel. Now, uh, admittedly, most of these uh, ice cream companies are now getting their mouthfeel from too much food science, in my opinion, and they use a lot of gums, um, guar gum, carrageenan, whatever it is, and that's what's giving um, a lot of that kind of creamy mouthfeel. You don't really want that. You want to use, if you have a base like this that has some eggs in it, that helps. The next thing to keep in mind is that these companies use what are called homogenizers. And the way to think about this is once their ice cream base is um, made, you know, and it's cooked in a big tank, it's then pumped through a homogenizer. And this is done under pressure. So you're not going to be able to duplicate this at home unless you've got a home homogenizer that I don't know about. But what that involves is pumping the liquid under pressure essentially through little screens and what this does you can't see it with the naked eye but microscopically there's different size of globules of fat in cream in milk in eggs and in order to get that super silky you know Haagen-Dazs mouthfeel that is so wonderful in ice cream not that sort of ice crystally crap that most people get when they make ice cream at home that's why they push this stuff through a homogenizer, and it, it uni makes all the fat globules uniform in size, and that's what you feel, that, that nice silkiness. Now, you can't do that, but you can cool this base off and put it in a, in a high-speed blender like a Vitamix and crank that, you know, cool it off and then crank that puppy up and, and keep in mind that the Vitamix can heat things to almost to a boil, so you don't want to do this for five minutes, but... If you put that base in your Vitamix, if you've got one, um, or if you don't, maybe you've got a stick blender, an immersion blender, that can do it too, and you um, put the spurs to it for a minute or two, that's going to help break down some of those uh, globules of fat and sort of change the consistency for the better. Now, that said, once you've got your base and you start freezing your ice cream, <clears throat> that's where you can add um, all your flavors. Now, let's talk about ice cream machines. We'll start with, you know, the most rudimentary and work your way up. And there's generally three types that you're going to deal with. Uh, number one is going to be the old-fashioned. It's, you know, it looks like a wooden barrel. Um, there's a turning mechanism, and a, usually it's just a, a, a tin 
um, container where you put the, the mix. In goes a thing called a dasher, and that's a little thing Whoops, that twists round and round and round, and that's what scrapes the sides and kind of makes your ice cream because you can't just freeze it, and you, you need to be scraping the colder part from the outside towards the inside, and you, you need agitation for that. Um, and then they're filled with ice all around it, and then you put rock salt all on top of the ice, and that kind of falls down into the ice. And a lot of people think about... Well, when it's the winter time, we take, you know, ice melt. That's salt, isn't it? We throw it on the um, the steps, and that makes the the ice melt. So why would we want to put the same thing in ice cream? Well, it's a little different. When you're using just pure rock salt, what it's doing, um, it slows the melting, but it decreases the temperature. I mean, you can take um, ice all the way down to like six below zero by adding some rock salt to it. So it it drastically reduces the temperature it slows the melting not forever but for for a short time and that's what helps make the ice ice cream now if you don't use that salt you're going to struggle to do it but when you have it good and salty it really chills it down uh icy cold and that's when you can um make great ice cream now keep in mind most of just like everything else folks most of those hand crank ice cream machines while they used to be made in America you know with real wood and you know steel gears and mechanisms it's all gotten chinaized so that means it's a big pile of crap from Walmart and it'll last you know three times and break and that kind of frustrates me that we can't even make our own stinking ice cream machines anymore we've got to hire the job out to to, to China don't get me started on that. Look for one at a garage sale or a flea market. Older the better because it will actually be the real deal. So let's assume you get one of those. That's a great way to make ice cream. It's cumbersome because you're going to have – you generally need to do it outside. You're going to have you know melted ice and salt and you know a bit of a mess. So it's generally on the front porch type thing. But it's festive. You can bring that to the park or whatever and make ice cream up. Keep in mind, when you get ice cream out of one of those um, hand crank deals or any of these ice cream machines, it's not going to be quite as cold and as solid as you think. Now, when they make it at you know the Ben & Jerry's plant, it gets you know pumped into those cups, covered, and it goes into – they've got blast you know freezers in there that are like 50 below zero. They're crazy cold, and that hardens it up. Um, and keeps the consistency. If you're at a picnic out in the sun and it's 89 degrees and humid and you're making ice cream, don't expect it to be that solid. It's still going to be a little loose. This is just um, the facts of life. So moving right along, the next type of ice cream machine that we see are these. Um, it's basically it's a mechanical device with a round circular tub, and that's got a chemical solution sealed into the tub, and you can freeze that thing overnight in the freezer, and then you add your ice cream base and the dasher, you turn it on, and it'll mix and make ice cream. Now, here's the deal that a lot of people, uh, and I've gotten this question through the years tons of times, I can't make ice cream, I put it in there and it's just a big soupy mess. People don't understand that when you're trying, when you take that tub out of the freezer, you know, that thing is below zero frozen solid, and then you go and put, you know, 90 degree ice cream base in it, duh, it's going to warm the thing up and you're not going to make ice cream. You need to chill this ice cream base no matter what method. I just told you it's going to be up to 175 degrees. It's thick. 
It's like lava. It's not going to want to cool off. You need to cool that stuff down. And the way you do that is by taking your pot and submerging it in ice water, not just ice cubes, ice water, and then you whisk it, you know, almost constantly in that. And don't put in five ice cubes in a bunch of water because it's going to be very warm. Put in, fill the sink with ice cubes, then put water, push this thing down in there and, and whisk, and that's going to cool your ice cream base when you get it. Below 50, then you can put it in the refrigerator, and then it needs to come down to under 40, to like refrigerator temperature, about 37, 38 degrees. Then when you put it into to your ice cream maker with the frozen insert thing, it's not going to melt everything. It's going to actually make ice cream. So don't be a dingy. Do that. Make sure you've got the, the ice cream base chilled off. That's the next method. Does that work? Yeah, that works great. That's probably the sweet spot where most folks are going to be is an electric machine like that. Again, uh, we all know the quality of these appliances nowadays is just not there anymore. Um, I can't, I can't vouch for any particular brand. Um, anytime it says Hecho in China, my friends, I don't know if you're going to get great luck out of it, but this is just, uh, you know, the way it is. The next step up is going to be, Similar system, except you're going to have a compressor. And when you go to an ice cream store, the frozen yogurt shop, whatever it might be, they make ice cream using compressors. A big company that makes machines is called Taylor. And um, you can pour your ice cream base in there and you press the button and it spins for a while and out comes the um, perfectly frozen ice cream. They're using a compressor, something like your freezer or refrigerator, that type of system. Now, they do make ice cream machines for the home kitchen that have these compressors, and I actually own one. It's made by, well, the brand on it is Cuisinart, and it's got a compressor and a timer. This thing makes the loudest racket you have ever heard in your life, so whenever we use it, um, we used to have a laundry room where it had a, you know, one of those pocket doors that you could close, and we would put it in there because it's, I mean, a heck of a noise. Um, aside from that, it did make pretty good ice cream, but as a, as I described with cheap appliances, the little, the thing that you lift it out is just a teeny, um, lift the container out once it's frozen is a piece of garbage wire, not strong enough for anything, always breaks. I'd wind up with a pair of pliers, you know, trying to get this thing out. Basically, what you what you do is you put your ice cream mix into the little, um, you know, whatever aluminum container. In goes the dasher right down the center, and it starts to spin. And it's got a compressor, so the outsides of this thing are super cold, and it freezes very quickly. You can make um, a pretty good ice cream. It still needs to go in the freezer for a little bit. You know, I think it's 20 minutes, maybe. And you've got a pretty good ice cream. Um, the challenge with those things is they're a little expensive, you know, three, four hundred dollars, I think, for one of those um, compressor-based machines. But they do work okay. Now, we just talked about the, the major machines. Um, you can add your ingredients. You don't want to remember there's something called gravity. And even though this is an ice cream base, it's a thick liquid, it's not going to suspend ingredients. So if you turn it on and you pour a bunch of, you know, chunks of bananas, cherries, chocolates, whatever the heck flavor you're making, it's all going to fall to the bottom and freeze at the bottom. When you remove it, you're just going to have an ice cream base. Heck, it'll taste good. And all the goodies will be at the bottom, like one of those fruit on the bottom yogurt cups. 
What you want to do is wait until it's starting to get really thick and almost frozen and then start to add your bananas and chocolate and walnut chunks to the top. That way it will, some will go down, some will kind of stay in the middle and you'll have an even dispersion. Is that a word? Dispersion? Disbursement of your ingredients. And, and that's basically it. Matt, I hope this helps. Um, everyone, I hope you have a tremendous 4th of July weekend. Wanted to quickly, very quickly, let you all know, those of you that are interested in unique food products, I am working with farmers in North Carolina, and they are raising right directly for me um, beautiful curly cayenne peppers, and I make a lacto-fermented cayenne pepper mash that is sinfully delicious and aromatic and amazing. And I'm only doing um, between zero to 200 jars. That's it. And the stuff is going to be expensive, but it is a, it's a world-class treat. If anybody wants to get on the list, email me, Keith at HarvestEating.com, because it's going to go pretty quick. Um, that's all I want to say. I hope, again, that everybody has a great weekend. Thanks for supporting Harvest Eating and the Survival Podcast. Jack, have a great weekend, dude. Later. And for those of you like me that tend not to indulge in carbohydrates, I will tell you that you can take that uh, that strawberry limeade that I uh, I gave you last week, make a concentrated version of it down to about a half volume, uh, and then sweeten as desired as you mix it up, and then use ice to cut it with in a Vitamix, and make a damn fine shaved ice type thing out of that, and... Uh, It'll make you happy, and you could even uh, mix a little heavy cream in there. Just pour a little heavy cream on the top of it after you put it in your bowl. You'll have zero carbohydrates or, you know, maybe two to three carbohydrates, and uh, you'll be pretty happy. Trust me. Give it a shot. You won't regret it. Next one I have today is coming to you uh, for uh, Michael the Bee Whisperer Jordan, and it's a person that's got an issue with uh, two beehives, one Langstroth and one Top Bar, and... Conventional wisdom would say the top bar should be the one that does better, and that's not what's happening. Michael, let's uh, let's talk about this. Hey, I'm Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer from a bee-friendly company out of Cheyenne, Wyoming. Taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and making of meads. Hey, this question comes from Mick out of Pennsylvania. Mick's story. I'm in my third year of beekeeping. The first year I had a single top bar hive had some major mistakes, and all the bees starve and froze in the late fall. Last year, the same top bar was successful for a while, and then they swarmed. I lost about half my bees, and then sometime during the mid-December, the remaining bees just left. No dead bees, just gone. This year, I got a Langstroth hive as well to go with it. I got two packages of bees. The top bar... I still had a good bit of comb in it, which I left, and they're using it a bit. The issue is that the Langstroth hive is like thriving. Tons of bees in production. The top bar barely looks like it has more bees than when I dropped it off, dropped them in. For the last few years, local beekeepers I've talked to said, that's what you get for using top bar. So my question is, are they really bad? I heard a few years back from a beak on the TSP Survival Podcast suggesting that they were more natural and the bees liked them better because they are more like what they would encounter in nature with the structure and society that bees have been taught and thought of. 
whatever was closest to their natural habitat would be best. But it isn't working out that way for me. So I guess my questions are, is it inaccurate? Meaning, do they actually prefer Langstroth? Is there anything I can do to promote the growth or productivity of the top bar? Any additional consideration that might cause or let them do well in a top bar? Or does it just take longer for them to thrive in a top bar? Big Mick, I want to start off by saying it comes to beekeeping, every keeper does things differently. Climate, plant life, temperature, uh, systems of management all play a role in keeping your bees. And those are only a few stabilizing factors. I'm not going to take a side on which hive is better or style of beekeeping works the best. I do know for a fact that more natural you go, the more you have to check the hives and work them. This is due that you're not using them to, with assistance uh, to make the bees work, that you're letting them do what they would do in nature or naturally. In nature, bees do not look for large places to live. They look for well-placed protection, high access for entering and exiting a home. Uh, most bees are removed from trunks of trees or spaces in walls and rafters of homes. The deep comb in short, long spaces and long, narrow comb in controlled ways is basically what you observe when you see bees working naturally in their habitat, that they try to keep everything condensed for warmth and control and structure. Your question is, do bees do better Langstroth hives than a top bar? Langstroth hives were made to aid beekeepers for easier keeping going from top bar systems to control frames for inspection and faster growth. It is to say that it's not always better for the bees, but it's better for the keeper. You don't have to check the hives as much. The bees' foundation they build off of. This takes less feed for them to start out with. And, you know, it's easier for you to move the comb without dropping or having them cross comb across the tops of the bars. I believe that I've stated that top bar will be one of the hardest types of beekeeping you'll ever do. It does teach you better beekeeping skills and is a brilliant way to watch bees work and take in their natural aspects of how they're building comb, how they're working as a community. Taking an open space and filling it with super comb is incredible to watch over a period of time. And I'm mean, talking about a period of time. I'm talking about if you're going out twice a week and you're watching them go from nothing to something and controlling the cross combing and how, see how they're growing and, and stabilizing to build that comb they work hard and you're, you're watching it and it's really really incredible to watch unlike Langstroth you're just sticking the frames in and you're checking to make sure that they're burring out comb and filling them full of brood and in top bar, you're making sure that they have enough feed for the top bar. That I think top bar, you should feed them lots of honey or a natural nectar to get them to make that growth, to make them produce wax in their wax glands to make that growth. With Langstroth, you already have the foundation, and they just go off of it. Uh, most uh, top bars are handmade, making parts only made by the maker of that hive that... Um, if you're making your own hive, all your stuff you have to make yourself when it comes to top bars so it all fits. Even if you're using plans or supplemental parts, uh, most of it you have to make yourself. 
And because you're making them all yourself, it's not like you can just go out and purchase things, unlike Langstra. Like I said, Langstra was made for the beekeeper and not necessarily for the bees. I want to make sure that you understand that it takes a long time for them to build everything that they do and need, all the way from honey for their food source for over the winter, all the way to the comb that they do to, to make it for brood laying. Uh, it's all done a natural way, and you do not want to remove wax or take anything from them because it takes so long for them to build it. And a lot of people aren't looking for production, but more just having bees for pollination and to just observe the growth. I will say that products are way better because of uh, top bar beekeeping because you're going to be using less sugar for them because that's more of the natural way of doing it. Uh, the comb is all from the colony of bees that are in there, and it's not starting off from plastic or from wax, from processing plants, from other bees that may have materials as pesticides in the wax or whatever to get or process where it doesn't have any of the enzymes or even some pollen and propolis that's in there to build some of that wax that it's going to be processed out. When it comes to what style or type of hive or management system, I would have to say to start out with an eco-hive from Salt Lake City, Utah by Albert Korbachev. They're a micro-hive. Uh, I think it's one of the simplest ways to even get started keeping bees. Uh, get one and use it. See how you like it. Uh, it will be a micro, easy to use and move, and fast bee growth. And what they're doing is they're taking frames and you're just adding a little foundation top on it. And then bees build in the whole frame all the way down. The little frames are very small. And it makes it so you can see them grow not only top bar style, but also with the Langster style of frame. And it's so small that uh, it does great population growth and it helps you be able to even take some of those frames out, wire them into Langster frames or onto top bars, and adjust to go to different systems. Um, I think that if you try this little hive in this system of any beginning beekeeper, that you'll really like it. You may even just stay with the little eco hives and do faster growth having many of them. But it'll also get you to see how you can use Langstroth and Top Bar and hive modifications for hybrid beekeeping and stuff like that. So I think the little eco hives are kind of cool to be using for beginning out and to start. Now that you've used both of them, though, and you're seeing what you're kind of do, um, I think that managing the bees has to be more and constant with Top Bar beekeeping, cutting the cones from the side making it easier to remove the, the comb and the bars out for inspection. Um, when you're using Langstroth beekeeping, you're basically going to be able to just use a hive tool, pull the frames out, do a quick inspection, and put the frames back in. And like I said before, top bar, you have to move very slow. You have to enjoy the time that you're there, and it's just not in and out. That A lot of people don't have lots of top bars, but they'll have lots of Langstroth hives. I get most of my Langstroth hives and parts from Man Lake, but most of them are all built the same, and you can get them from even vendors that are locally that are doing woodwork. I've been getting all my top bar equipment from Justin Bethel from Abundant Gardens. Uh, Justin has a whole top bar kits that are fantastic, from nukes from, to, for breeding boxes to super long uh, hives for long-term growth. He ships in his wood from Russia, they're a premium uh, CNC printout, and they are, I think, a fantastic heavy hive for top bar beekeeping. That uh, everything that comes with them, and he has 
spare parts for everything. You can order more more bars if needed, side panels. Uh, I even think that if you work with him, he'll even custom paint your hives for you before they come out. So his top bar beekeeping is really, really good when it comes to products and parts. Um, I think also that you need to think about styles of beekeeping and, and, and system of management, that managing your Langstroth and managing your top bar are going to be totally different. You're going to be seeing your top bar beekeeper uh, hive more, and you're not going to be managing your Langstroth as much. The 9-11 method that I teach is from... Uh, Rose hives. Uh, I'm going to throw that out. It's way cool if you're going to look at being a beekeeper to look into rose hives. Yes, it's from my Irish background, but it's just to get in your mind to think out of the box of the different systems and styles of, of keeping bees. So when I check my Langstroth beehives, I'm using that 911 method. And when I'm doing top bar beekeeping, we're checking them basically every four to five days to make sure that the comb's not sticking, that they're building, that we're able to rotate the top bars and stuff like that to keep them adequately growth. So we're checking them more and, and on a more heavily basis than we do the Langstroth beekeeping. So um, don't get discouraged, uh, Mick. The top bar is hard work. It takes more time to manage. It takes good feed, lots of feed for them to build and start comb for building. And once you get comb and you've lost bees, yes, they can go right back in working. But that does not mean you have to limit the feed that they have. They're going to need the feed to start off because top bar is different. And working with them is done is done at the coolest times of the day, so the comb will not pull or fall apart. So you're going to either do it really early in the morning or you're going to do it really late at night. I prefer early in the morning. That way the comb has time to cool and set and a little bit harder to where you're working and pulling them out. Uh, Langstroth usually work during the middle of the day. And top bars, you're working mostly in the in the morning. Like I said, you also need to strape the burr comb and stuff because of the open space in Langstrip. And in top bar, you're not really looking for that, but you are looking to free up cross combing, which happens quite a bit from top bar beekeeping if you're not really working and managing to build straight down off the frames. Uh, top bar has its benefits because it has better communication, I feel, for the bees. They build super way better wax, and it keeps them going strong. And I think that if after a year and you get them going and you're cutting the wax out, you're going to find out the wax is way better for all your products that you're using at home. Langstroth works well. It's easy for you to get parts for because they're so heavy to move, and swarming happens easily because of limited space. You really have to manage that part. So there are some do's and don'ts of, of both. Uh, just keep up the beekeeping. Um, like I said, if if, uh, if the beekeeping's not work, I'm glad you reached out and asked uh, another beekeeper. But try to find some other local people doing the same thing. I've been noticing with other people, I don't have a queen. I'm not building. You're able to switch brood with other keepers. Some of them are already say, man, I've got queen cells, and you can just let them go, and then you're able to give them to beekeepers that have lost queens. So keep working with your system. And keep working with other beekeepers. And uh, don't give up. Keep plugging on, man. Uh, try to get into a little group where you guys are either managing your top bars all in the same system so you guys can actually see who's doing well, who's doing not, and try to adapting things to build a good program for your top bar. And same thing with your Langstroth. That's, you want to build that community and that onset for beekeeping. 
And those are just some things I, I think you should always think about. Uh, yes, top bars very hard, and Langstroth's for the beekeepers, bro. That's just that's just why they built Langstroth hives. Is he made it easier for the keepers? Hey, I am the Bee Whisperer, Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company, asking you to buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect, man. Buy it local. Find that guy that's, that's got it out there for that allergy relieving and great honey flow that you have that's not sugared down or corn sugar or trying to get you into something that they're just pumping stuff into the beehives. Buy it from a cottage industry from that little guy because he has to start, man. If we can get him going, we eliminate all that big bulk product that comes out that's not as good as we're getting it from the natural beekeepers. And the other thing, always help your fellow man. I can't stress that enough, that everybody's asking on this network for help. And try to give some. Try to give as much out as you can to your fellow man. Because, you know, one day, man, you're going to need help, too. As an aspiring beekeeper, I, I think I've come to a conclusion that a lot of people might be mad at me when I when I say, but and it's what I'll add to all of the great things Michael said. There's no such thing as natural beekeeping. There's no chemical beekeeping. There's uh, as natural as you can make it beekeeping. There's uh, there's ethical beekeeping. There's being nice to your bee beekeeping, but there's absolutely no such thing as being 100% natural the way bees live in nature. One of the things I learned from Michael is that where bees live naturally, uh, the European honeybee that we, that we put in boxes, they, they, you know, over here, yeah, they go into walls, they go into tree trunks and stuff like that. But where they're from, like in Italy, in the wild, they don't. They build comb like under an eave of a tree, just exposed out in the open. They don't go in a box. They don't need to be in a box. Uh, in their in their right habitat, they live like that. They don't attach their their comb to either frames or bars. They attach their comb to something above them, and they build it naturally down. They don't have a space between their combs maintained by a beekeeper. They maintain that space between their combs themselves. They don't create cross comb. You know, they don't they don't they don't mess their own comb up. They do their own thing. No one comes and kills a queen when they decide, I don't want you to requeen. No one divides them in half when they don't want to be divided in half. And, and there's, this is the reason I say that. It's not like beekeeping's bad. I, I love beekeeping. I think that we have to understand that what we need to figure out is what works best for us and the bees in our own climate, in our own system, in our own time frame, and things like that. And stop worrying about trying to be just like nature. Because we're, we're not going to be just like nature. It just doesn't work that way because we're taking the choice to put them in a box and I, I loved hearing Michael T. off one time about all these bad beekeeping practices and he's like he just got all mad he's like why'd you put them in a box they didn't ask you to be put in a box they were happy they were living out in nature you grabbed them you put them in a box so you got to take care of them and I think that's not nothing to do with the person that asked the question just the concept of natural I think we need to take a, uh, a different look at there is no way that man can raise a bee and control it and do all the things we want to, like take wax and take honey and divide hives and create new queens and create passive bees and do all of those things and really do it 100% naturally. We just go as close to nature as we can get. I think that's Michael's philosophy anyway. But I just want to kind of add that for everybody. Next question I have is for Ben Falk, and it's on dealing with a whole bunch of leftovers after logging activities. Ben, take it away. 
Hey there, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole System Design with a very difficult question from Nathan in a really difficult climate, Zone 3 in Maine. Sounds like it's been like a typical northern Maine site, really blasted with logging work and then buried organic matter under clay. Uh, that's There's no easy answer there for you. Sorry about that, um, that I know of. Um, you know, that's not a situation that you want to get in. It's a situation I see a lot of property in, unfortunately, especially in the heavier logged zones. Um, but, you know, there's no plants that are going to really undo that for you in, in, in short order. Um, it took heavy equipment to cause that problem. And it's going to take heavy equipment to alleviate that problem, at least in a relatively non-geological timescale. Um, I mean, if you got brush buried many feet under clay... You could plant certain plants like honey locust. Sycamore probably won't even survive in zone three. I'm not sure, but maybe not. Maybe honey locust. Uh, ginkgo is a good one for those conditions. Larch can take those terrible soil conditions. There's not a long list of species. Alder and larch could be ways of succeeding that site, you know, into um, something where you can get active roots to penetrate into there. And start turning that that whole mound of mess of stuff into topsoil. Uh, it's going to take a while, but I would do that unless I was going to go in there with like at least like a thirty thousand pound excavator and try to like undo it all and make a big mess and hopefully end up with something better. Um, but that's a tough situation. And um, zone three logged out site in Maine is also a tough situation. Um, so. You know, my sympathies go out to you, but uh, I hope uh, I hope you get to work on something good there. And you know, it's, it has other advantages to being in that part of the world. But it's definitely a, it's a tough site situation you're talking about on multiple levels. Thanks a lot. So I guess the only other option that I could give you is if you have a source on the property uh, of of dirt that you can move in and create mounds and put texture in the landscape. And get the root zone up out of the buried debris, up out of that that, that anaerobic clay, uh, and start to establish that. Then you can start to build, you know, from the top up instead of from the bottom down with your topsoil. And then the same thing Ben said, whatever will grow in there, get growing in there. And I'd like to point out that a long time ago I did an article and I said, don't build hugel swales. And I wasn't talking about little mounds here and there, I was talking about big full-on hugaculture swales where you got a six to nine foot wide swale a couple feet deep in the center something that's holding thousands of gallons per you know a uh, hundred feet with a great big mound on the other side and burying lots and lots of wood and because uh, you can create slips and what people said is well you can trench first bury the wood and then put the mound on top of the locked in trench and then you're not going to have slips and i said you're going to create an anaerobic condition and it's, it's going to be negative impact on your ability to actually grow things. And this, these two techniques at scale don't go together. This is the same thing. It's the same thing. It, it's a tough situation. Now, I have hope for this. If you can, again, get some elevated texture in the landscape and get something to grow in there. I think Ben's kind of on it with alder. Alder, I think, would grow in there for you. And then... Once you get those roots in there and you start to get kind of pathways, and remember, 
Trees are hydraulic pumps. That's what a tree is, a hydraulic pump. If you can get anything growing in their large scale that will start to actually pull that moisture up and out, uh, then you can start to get into a reasonable uh, condition for organic matter breakdown, and that can become very fertile ground over time. But right now what you got is akin to a peat bog. Uh, the, the wood, instead of being broken down, is being preserved. And it might be worth, at least in some areas, renting a, a fairly large excavator and trying to pull some of that stuff out. But I don't know. It, it depends. That's a big old, big old fat. It depends. Uh, with that, uh, I've got one more for you today. Uh, actually, two more for you today. This one is for John Pugliano on dealing with student loan debt and how to pay it off. Hello, TSP listeners. Angeline has a question about what's the most effective way to pay off her student loan debt. She has a great deal of student loan debt somewhere in the neighborhood of, let's call it $45,000. Now, this is uh, multiple loans. There's you know five or six different loans amounting, uh, totaling that amount, and then it's split up between a couple companies. Uh, she is wondering... You know, what's the best way to get rid of this? She has a dream of, of, of moving to another state and owning a homestead. She's been doing some research on this and talking to some companies that can offer some consolidation loans where she can take, uh, you know, these six different loans, bundle them into one, take the interest rates from, you know, six and a half, seven, maybe even eight percent down to something in the range of maybe five percent. But she really doesn't want to do that. She's thinking about going the course of, uh, you know, taking the path of the Dave Ramsey debt snowball where she attacks the smallest loan first. And in her case, she has one student loan that's under $1,000. She'd uh, save up en enough and, and put as much as she can towards that to pay that one off and then roll that money into the next one and so forth. She's even talking about uh, perhaps totally trying to kill these as quick as they can where uh, she just dedicates 100% of her salary over the next two years to pay these loans off. So is that a good idea or a bad idea? You know, what's the most effective way? Well, Angeline, I'll give you a real short answer here. I think you're on the right track. If I was in your shoes, I would take the Dave Ramsey debt snowball approach and, you know, take the next two years and do everything I can, eat beans and rice, get a second job, uh, have a garage sale, do all the things I need to do to kill this student loan debt and get on with my life. Now, having said that, and for the benefit of other TSP listeners, I do also want to mention, though, that there are two schools of thought on debt, and, and I don't hate debt. I think it should be avoided. I think most Americans misuse it. And actually, while we're even along those lines, let me put in a plug for Perma Ethos TV. On July 26th, I'll be doing a live presentation with Josiah Wallingsford. And we'll be specifically talking about how debt is slavery, and we'll be discussing some techniques about how you can actually live debt-free and be thriving as opposed to being a slave to debt. So if you're so inclined, check that out. That's July 26th, live broadcast at 4 p.m. Eastern. Now, as far as debt overall and the two schools of thought, one school of thought is what I think most Americans should follow. And Angeline, that's what we're talking about is, you know, get this debt knocked off, get it paid for as soon as, you, as possible and move on with your life. The other school of thought is to consolidate your loans, get them at the lowest interest rate you can, and then take the most amount of time possible to pay them off. I'm not opposed to that if, and this is a big if, and that's if you can put that money to work to where it's paying significantly more returns and dividends than the uh, the interest rate you're paying or that the risk you're taking for carrying that loan. 
And so what I mean by that is if you can consolidate a loan down to 5% and then maybe you think you can get a 7% return in the stock market with it, I don't think that's a good idea. I think you should just pay off the loan. Also, if you think you're going to take you know, $45,000 and be able to double it in six months trading options or trading Forex or flipping real estate, unless you have a skill and a history of proving that you can do that and virtually no one does, then again, you shouldn't do that. You're falling for some get-rich-quick scheme, and you're going to find yourself worse off. If, on the other hand, you can actually take that $45,000 and use it to start a real and productive business where, say, in a year or two years, you're going to be generating $100,000, $150,000 income, well, then by all means, that money would be better utilized investing in yourself, investing in a small business, but that should only occur when there's a realistic probability that you can actually be successful and get that kind of a return. Now, unfortunately, most people that are saddled with debt are not in that situation. And in fact, the reason that they're saddled with debt is because they've made poor choices and that's how they got into debt to begin with. Now, Angeline, I'm not picking on you. I'm not saying that you made bad choices. I don't know your particular situation. I just know that you have come to the realization that you have this large amount of debt and you need to get rid of it. And I think you should do that as quickly as you can so that you can move on with your life. Now, I do want to part with a word of encouragement and a word of warning. As far as the encouragement goes, you can make this happen. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. You're going to be discouraged, particularly if it takes you a couple years to pay this off. But if you and your husband make the commitment and you really force yourself to use your creativity and your own talents and abilities to, to come up and tackle this debt, I know you can get rid of it. You can whittle it down, and you'll ultimately be a better person for it. In fact, the discipline that you have for paying off this debt will probably be more valuable than the education that you attained when you accumulated the debt to begin with. So I'd use this as a positive experience, not a negative experience. The word of warning that I want to leave you with, though, is that I know that you're anxious and you want to go out and move to another state and start a homestead. Be careful with that. Homesteading is probably something that's going to be very beneficial for you and your family. But remember, when you were younger and probably not as wise as you are today, you went to school and you accumulated all this student loan debt at the time you thought you were you know, buying a valuable education and it was worthwhile. But now here you are, you're saddled with all this debt. And if you could do it all over again, you, you probably wouldn't get in the same situation again. And so what I'm going to encourage you is, as you take the time to pay off this debt, Really think about where you want to live, what kind of homestead you want to have, what's affordable, what's right for you and your family, and how should you and your husband go about financing that next piece of real estate. You're probably going to have to take out a mortgage and go into debt to make that happen, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't. I'm just encouraging you to learn from this past debt experience and proceed with caution and make sure the next time you take on a substantial loan, it's going to be a blessing to you and not a curse. Angeline, that's my two cents. If you'd like to hear more about my thoughts on wealth building skills or my commentary on the stock market, then please check out the Wealth Steading Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Great advice from John. And I, I kind of want to add something to this that I, I think a lot of people would never make the correlation to, even if they'd been through this experience. When I was a young man, I decided that I wanted an adventure, so I joined the United States Army, and I went through something called basic training. 
like every other soldier that's gone through basic training, I guess, in the last 50 years or more, uh, one day uh, as part of our nuclear, biological, and chemical training, we went to a place called a gas chamber. We went in there wearing a mop suit, which is a mission-oriented protective posture suit that protects you from chemical agents and uh, some other agents as well. Uh, with a gas mask on. And we put that gas mask on and we went in there and we did some jumping jacks and we moved around and we proved to ourselves that that equipment worked and protected us. We then each had to break the seal on our mask, clear our mask. You got a little bit of itchiness and uh, uh, burning, but not much. And you, you convinced yourself that if even if your seal was broken, if you acted quickly, you could probably save yourself and be okay. Uh, so you, you did that and you got confidence in your equipment. And then they made you do something you really didn't want to do. Made you take the mask off. And as bad as you thought it was going to be, when you took that mask off, and I, I did it more than once because uh, I had some uh, permanent party training like this, it, it, it doesn't really get you as bad. I mean, it hurts. It sucks. Don't get me wrong. But it doesn't really have the complete, overwhelming, oh, my God, experience the first as it does the first time. The first time, you just can't believe it. You just can't believe the way that it feels. You can't believe how overpowering it is. You can't believe how much you want to close your eyes and it doesn't help. You can't believe how much you want to touch your face, but you know not to because it'll make it worse. You can't believe how the snot comes flying out of your nose. You can't believe how you choke things up. You can't believe how they make you talk before you leave to make sure you really breathe it in. And you can talk, but you can barely talk. You can't believe how bad you want to get out of there. You just can't. You can't believe how bad it sucks. And for a while... Your head's telling you, even once you're out of there, this isn't going to go away. It isn't going to stop. And then it begins to get better. But you know what? You never forget it. And when you are told you're going to a combat situation, or you're on alert and you might be, and to check your chemical gear, you check your freaking chemical gear. You don't half-ass it. You don't assume it's good enough. You don't pretend it's okay. You check your gear, and you check it hard. Because for the rest of your life, in your head, will live, and I am in my 40s now, and I did this when I was just 18, just barely 18. When you take that mask off, that initial experience lives with you forever. And every time you would ever do anything that would require that you use care around a chemical agent, even when it ain't going to hurt you that bad, like consumer-level stuff that we deal with is chemicals. You think about it. You think about it differently than anybody who hasn't been through that situation. That's paying off massive debt. person who's in massive debt doesn't understand the pain of the debt yet. When they pay it off, they actually have the experience of removing their gas mask. They understand the pressure of being in the chamber, of being afraid, of being in fear, and having to keep all that gear on when they really don't want to. That's being in debt. Paying it off is where you actually rip off the mask, inhale the gas, choke snot out of your nose, wish to God it would stop, and when it finally does, you say, I'm not going to ever do it that way ever again. And I think that's why Dave Ramsey's so hot on you got to pay it off. you got to pay it off as hard and fast as possible so you get that lesson learned. And then I think you can use debt responsibly after that, just like you use CS gas responsibly after that. But you won't make the, the same mistake again. You won't do it again. On not making the same mistake again, let's bring Gary Collins on now for a question about going low-carb slash paleo. 
having really great results and putting the weight back on. Hey everyone, Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method here again. And we have talk about the yo-yo of the low-carb diet. And this is a phenomenon that is actually pretty common. I've gotten asked a ton of questions about this over the years as well. And and Frank is going through what almost everyone who goes low carb and doesn't quite it doesn't have it explained correctly to them what they will go through. And very simply, Frank went low carb uh what did he say a couple years ago and dropped a lot of weight and then and then, you know, kind of got off it, and when he got off it, gained a lot of weight. And he's asking because he, he started reading about getting the, the dummy net. You get on the dummy net, and you start looking at something. And if you don't know what you're looking for and understand the premise, for me, I know what I'm looking for. I'm, I'm looking for health questions or, or information on health. If you go on there and you're looking, you look up low carb, you're going to go in a bazillion different directions. You're going to have every moron known to man giving you their two cents, and they don't have a clue. And there's actually a, a low-carb uh, supposed expert. He is the main guy who is obese. I mean, he is huge. He cannot control his weight. He's big ketogenic guy, low-carb guy. The guru, the guy is clueless. I've actually offered to help him for free get his act together. But I honestly, I think it's purely... I don't know, and all of his followers are the same way. But don't get caught in those groups. If you if you if you're getting information to lose weight from someone who's grossly overweight, stop. Just stop. Don't even waste your time. But this is uh, the low-carb, uh, you know, ketogenic, they're different. Ketogenic and low-carb are actually different as far as the macro levels, and I don't want to get in the weeds and get too far into this because this is a low-carb question. But let's look at the low-carb diet. Low carb is essentially getting your primary calories from protein and fat and especially fat, which ketogenic, which is the same similar thing, actually is an upper level of calories from fat. 75 to 80, 90 percent of your calories will come from fat. And what happens when you go low carb? What you're doing is you're taking away carbohydrates in order to up your protein and up your fat consumption to get your body this get your body to start to burn all that stored fat and this works in the beginning here's why it works because we are sugar burners all americans are fat i'm sorry didn't mean fat flat out <laughs> slip of words there flat out sugar holics i mean we are addicted to sugar and carbohydrates well what's a carbohydrate carbohydrate is a complex sugar that's what it did. that's what it is that's how it works and when you eat a carbohydrate, basically it has to be broken down to a simple sugar in order for your body to process it. So by buying, being these sugar addicts that we are, what happens when you eat overconsume empty calories, carbohydrates today, because most carbohydrates we ingest today are from uh, pasta, bread, uh, sugary drinks, you know, soda pop, desserts, just junk. I mean, we just eat junk and not to say all bread pasta's junk, but the stuff we eat as Americans is. It's empty. There's no nutritional value in it. All that's been stripped out and all you're left with is a refined grain with nothing left but the carbohydrate. So what happens is your body inhibits its ability to burn and utilize fat. So 
And in addition, what happens too is it makes you retain water and sodium. That is where you end up with hypertension is by over-consuming carbohydrates. And if you over-consume carbohydrates, which turns into sugar, sugar is highly oxidating, which means it, it, it causes chronic inflammation in the body. So you start to see the slippery slope of health. So back on the topic here, though, of how he lost a lot of weight. He was 325 pounds, went to 205. Um, and he said he did Atkins, which is a low-carb type of diet, especially in the beginning. It's very low carb, um, if any carbs, if I, from what I remember. Um, but then, like I said, he said about four years ago, then he changed jobs and went low carb again. He's going low carb again because he gained the weight back. And this is very common too. People who go low carb, go ketogenic. It works good for a while and then they slowly start to gain the weight. Here's why. Here's the, the physiological process that goes on in your body. By eliminating almost all carbohydrates and, and primary and upping your protein, but they primarily up their fat. Well, the only time in nature where your body would be utilizing uh, overabundance of fat as its primary energy source long term, because remember, our body is going in and out of using utilizing different macronutrients for energy. You know, our, our, our sugar, blood sugars, quick burn, quick, you know, if you got a bolt, take off, run fast, get out of there. That's, that's going to be your glycogen stores. That's going to be your, your free, uh, your, your, your glucose in your bloodstream. That's blood sugar. That's what's going to happen. Protein and fat through gluconeogenesis can be converted to, uh, blood sugar, but the problem, glucose, but the problem is it takes longer. Um, and, and fat is a long-term burner usually. But everything's working together, in, out. All these energy systems are constantly moving all the time. So by eliminating carbohydrates and eliminating that freeborn glucose for the prime, most part, your body thinks it's going into starvation mode. The only time where you will con continuously burn nothing but fat is starvation. So what happens is your body goes, okay, I'm not getting enough glucose or carbohydrates in the form that I'm used to. So I'm going to downregulate my metabolism. I'm going to slow all the processes down. So this is why I always recommend, and anyone who's listened to me, and I've answered this question before in a different format, that ketogenic and, and low-carb only work for roughly two to three weeks, and then you got to get off it. Because the longer you do it, the more you downregulate, the more you basically break your metabolism. Um, and, and what happens is once you do it so long term, now your body is carbohydrate sensitive and it's very hard to break this cycle because it turns into a boom bust cycle. And I'm not real sure I haven't been able, you know, the science isn't real clear why this works, but my opinion is it just basically breaks your metabolism. It just breaks it. And once you do that, it is very hard to recover and get your body to assimilate carbohydrates and sugar correctly. It basically goes into hyper storage mode because your body is thinking it's been in starvation mode for so long. Anytime you get this carbohydrate or sugar, it goes, boom, I need to store this stuff right now. And you end up gaining weight and gaining it very, very, very rapidly. So for that problem, that's now he's trying to do it. He's trying to return to that and it's not working right. He's been doing it for three weeks. He's only lost five pounds. Well, there's a good 
good uh, probably probability that he his metabolism is just slowed, slowed down. It's stuck, and the best way to do it is to follow the primal lifestyle. You got to make sure that you get enough sleep, you exercise regularly, you you get your heart rate up at least two three times a week. Through you can use high intensity interval training, do sprints, run, swim fast, ride your bike fast, do something. You got to get your heart level up. So you got to get all these systems in place, and you've got to get your your macronutrient basics, your 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 protein, fat, and carbohydrates in balance to what you're doing, um, and that's the only way. So once you implement these carbohydrates back into your diet, you got to exercise. You got to make sure you exercise. You know where I find this to be very very common is people who try and lose weight and be healthy by diet only. So they're still living the American sedentary life and not moving, not exercising. And if they do, it's the chronic cardio, getting on the Stairmaster, getting on the the elliptical for you know an hour, never getting their heart rate up, and that just doesn't work. You've got to lift things, got to do resistance training, you got to get some cardio in there, you got to get your heart rate up, which means you got to take it up a notch one way or another. That's the only way it works. I'm telling you, people have tried to shortcut this stuff a million ways. They've tried to exercise the weight away without changing their diet. They've tried changing their diet without doing any exercise. It doesn't work. It's all got to be in balance. So, and he's also said he's quit alcohol and not drinking till it's under control. And he indicates I was drinking, say, two to three a day, four to five days a week. That's too much. That is too much alcohol. I'll be honest with you. If you're drinking two to three beers or mixed drinks four or five days a week, I'll be honest. You're, you're an alcoholic. Uh, I hate to be blunt, but you shouldn't be drinking that much that many times a week. So there's another issue there. I am not an addiction specialist. This is my interpretation of what I'm seeing. And not to shed bad light on Frank, but and to be honest with you, most Americans drink too much alcohol today anyway. Um, and I'm not saying alcohol is bad, but I'm talking one drink a night, seven days a week. I have problems with that, even though the medical association says it's healthy. I don't know. I don't think drinking alcohol every single day is a good idea, and especially the alcohol today. I mean, it's highly processed. It's just like our foods. Unless you're making your own alcohol, got your own distillery in the back, got your own beer brewing factory, you know, it's not doing you much good. Um, I hope that helps and explains kind of the low-carb uh, system of if you do it too long, the ketogenic, it, it, it just, it, it, like I said, it, it ruins your metabolism, and then you become carbohydrate-sensitive, which makes it very hard long-term or down the road to implement those carbohydrates or take them back out with any results. Again, if you have any questions, hit the comment section or email me at contact at primalpowermethod.com. Thanks. I actually have some differences of opinion with Gary here. I don't think he's wrong. I just think maybe the holistic view may not be the same. So when you're in an industry, often you tunnel in on the piece of something that you see as a competitor that doesn't work well. Uh, or has its flaws rather than maybe something that would also be called low-carb that actually tends to work a lot better. So what Gary's talking about primarily here is a low-carb approach that moves the majority of the, the, the caloric intake to fat. 
um, which will work for rapid weight loss at times. And I'll even explain why this, like, I, I read the original question. The guy said it was like the Goldilocks effect. The first time you do it works really good. The second time it doesn't work so good. So he was more worried about not that he put the weight back on, because he says why he put the weight back on. He started eating food he wasn't supposed to eat anymore. He didn't go he didn't go into like a maintenance phase, into a long-term phase. He went back to just eating everything. And the truth is I've done that some myself lately, and I'm kind of back on this, getting back on the wagon and, and going back down to where I was again myself. And talk about pain, this will be the last time I have to do this, I promise you. But if you want to take the low-carb approach, as much as I'm a fan of paleo, the book I would recommend was the original Protein Power or the second book, Protein Power Lifestyle or something, it's pretty much a modified version of the first book, by Dr. Uh, Jan and Michael Eads. And if you follow that approach, you're not going to replace the majority of your caloric intake with fat. Your fat intake will go up. There's, Well, it might. It depends on how you're eating now. right? If, you, if you're eating lots of carbs and lots of fat, your fat intake might actually go down on this diet. But if you're eating a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet and it's failing you, and you go on to the Eats diet, your fat intake will go up. If you're eating a typical American diet, which is all kinds of garbage food, sugar, and fat, your fat intake will go down quite rapidly. And here's, here's why. Because the first thing you'll have to do before you worry about fat and carbs and everything else is calculate what is your lean body mass, what is your muscle weight. And then that muscle weight will give you a, a, a fixed amount of protein that you need to consume a day, And then you'll break that protein up throughout the day as either three meals or three meals plus two snacks, and you need to eat that amount of protein, period. You can get it just about any way that's not a bad way or doesn't come with something else you're not supposed to be eating, like lots of sugar, and you're fine, but you got to eat it. Especially for men that are 5'11", 5'10", 5'11", 6' foot tall and have a, a, a substantial lean body mass. Guys that have, if your wrist is thick, if, the, if your wrist is thick enough that you, 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 you know, the average man couldn't put his hand around it and, and touch his fingers, uh, you've got a, a, you know, a, a substantial frame, you've got wide shoulders, You know, you've worn a you've worn a bigger suit coat than people would think before you were fat. If you're that guy, you're going to be surprised at what your lean body mass is, how much muscle you're carrying around, and your protein requirement will shock you when you figure out what you got to eat for breakfast. And when you do that, and you cut the carbs at the same time, the amount of fat you eat is going to be minimal. Even though you might eat bacon and things like that to get the protein in, you're going to eat so much freaking food that you're not going to have a lot of places for the rest of the fat to go. So I think that if you want the low-carb approach, if you don't want to go straight paleo or primal or, or what have you, that, that protein-based approach of low-carb is, is far more effective than going pure fat, right? Because the ketogenic stuff will work. Now, I actually have a theory from reading the Dr. Zeed's book as to why this Goldilocks effect may have something to it. I'm not saying it does, but it may. What you learn when you read the science in this book is about the concept of insulin resistance. And that over time, what happens is your kid can go out and eat four candy bars and doesn't get fat because their blood sugar spikes, but the insulin comes in, boom, pushes the blood sugar down, and everything goes back to stasis really, really fast. That spike is truly a spike. It's not elevated. Because your, your, your blood insulin level should be like, 10 microliters, right, is where it should be. 
And most Americans are walking around between 15 and 35, and they're being called pre-diabetic. But really, you are like you are type 2 diabetic at that point. You just not. It, it's like a dimmer switch. Okay, think of it like people think type 2 diabetes like, well, you're kind of getting close there, but there's a switch when you actually are, you aren't. It's more like you're turning up a dimmer switch and you're you're 40, 60% there, and over time that's doing a lot of damage. This is primarily because your body actually develops a resistance to insulin response. So it takes more insulin to do the same thing. And eventually you get to a point where everything gets cattywampus and your body stops producing insulin or simply can't produce enough to counteract the insulin resistance your body's developed. When you cut the carbs, and I'm not saying to nothing, but I'm talking about for protein power, the intervention phase, phase one type situation, is about 30 carbs a day. It's more than you think it is. If you're getting your carbohydrates from things like leafy greens and lower carb vegetables and fruits, it's a substantial amount of food. If you're getting it from a slice of bread, it's not much at all. It's a lot of fiber, it's a lot of food, it's a lot of minerals, it's a lot of micronutrients. And then if you're getting the amount of protein you need, which which could be a, a lot more than you'd think, I'll just say that. When you start realizing I got to even if I'm going to eat those two eggs, I got to put two more egg whites with my omelet to get my protein up to where it needs to be. Because I'm a guy with a significant, you get shocked. You're like, wow, I got to eat all this. Well, when you do that, and you're now you're feeding your muscle the way you're supposed to, you're calorically going to be right about where you should be for a general diet, a general maintenance diet. But your your insulin levels are going to plummet. Your blood pressure, if it's elevated, is going. And you need to talk to a doctor if you're on any medications. Uh, for blood pressure, if you're on diuretics, things like that, don't do this shit without consulting with your doctor and easy. Get them a copy of the book and make a freaking reader find a new doctor. Because this it will, will plummet your blood pressure. It, it, it really will. And when that all happens, your body begins to retune. And it begins to repair the damage done. And it begins to become less and less insulin resistant. So that when you do have some blood sugar come up and the insulin comes in, it behaves more like when you were 15, 20 years old than it does now that you're 45. Assuming you did a good job, you got into good shape, you lived a couple of years in good shape, and then you put the weight back on over time, you've re-damaged those insulin receptors a second time. And it may take more work to push down that insulin resistance before you go into a, a symbiotic state. So I do believe that maybe the first time you do it right, it works better and faster than the second or third or fourth time you're doing it right. And that's why it's important, and that's another thing I like about protein power. And I'm going long here, almost as long as Gary on his answer. But there's very specific rules, and I really wish I would have followed the rules and kept on them. And that is when you get where you want to be, you start adding carbohydrates at 10 grams a day. And you do it for a week. At 10 grams a day, you add it back in. And then you say, did I, did I put weight on? Did my blood pressure go back up? Have I noticed any negative symptoms whatsoever? And if you're smart, you do it for two weeks. And you, you go, okay, I can handle this and it doesn't have negative consequences. And then you come up another 10 grams a day for another week or two. And you do the same thing. And you come up to where you're happy with the amount of carbs you have to eat. Or you come up to a point where, you know what, at the end of this week, I put two pounds on. At that point, it's probably not real fat. It's you're starting to retain water. 
and you go back down to where you were the week before, and that is your stasis level. And for most people, on this, you know, the people are like, you can't be low carb. It's gonna. By the time you do this, your protein and carb grams per day will be very close to the same amount. And your fat will be moderate. Because you're requiring yourself to eat the protein. And that's what gets left out so many times. And it's why as I'm retooling myself after being stupid and, and just, you know, basically for the past two years living kind of stupid and just being thinking I can get away with it again, um, coming back from that approach, it's a much more scientifically tuned, controlled approach. And it's, it, it, to me, it gives you a framework to work off of. And I'd challenge Gary to kind of look deeper into that one and maybe see it from a different angle. It's not necessarily high fat, but it's really high protein, moderate fat, low carb, and it becomes high, high protein, moderate carb, moderate fat is what it actually phases itself into. Uh, let's, uh, the next one actually is a question for me. And uh, I'm going to give you the uh, the Reader's Digest version of this question because it's pretty long, but I can almost hear the, the, the anger and the pain in this question. And it's basically, he listened to my show yesterday where I talked about hysteria and voting hysteria and end-of-the-world hysteria and stuff. And he basically said, you know, Jack, I think that a lot of people are feeling this way like they have to vote or they have to convince people that something's going to be okay or something's going to be wrong or whatever because they feel trapped and they feel like they don't have freedom anymore. And if, if you tell them, well, you can't, you can't change it by voting, Your vote doesn't matter, and even if mathematically it's true, uh, but but you tell them that, and you tell them, well, you can't convince all these other people that you're right and they're wrong, and if you did, it wouldn't change anything anyway. When you tell people that, then what they what they say is, okay, then then I'm helpless, and then truly it, it's all lost. I, I can't be free. How, how can I ever be free when you're telling me the only remedies I ever thought I had don't work? And the guy said, you know, yeah, I can plant a garden, Jack, and I can have my own food and all. But still, in the end, I look at it, the world, and I see all of these things going wrong. And everything that I want to do it, it is hard. And even when I figure out how to do it, there's impediments. And there's always the risk that they're going to tell me after I've become successful with something, I can't do it anymore. Or they're going to take it away from me. Or they're going to make it harder for me to do. And... Can we even be free anymore? Can we ever go back to being free? Can we ever be free in America? In fact, he said, can we ever be free anywhere? And I know it'll sound hollow when I say freedom is the state of mind, but to a large degree it is. I think what we have to understand is that in some ways, mankind is more enslaved today than any time in history. But in many other ways... Mankind is more liberated today than any time in history, especially in most of the modern world. And it's up to us to figure out how to design our lives with an acceptance of that which we can't control. See, the, the word that really hit me there, and I thought that's not the problem, that's the solution, is understanding that in many of these things you're helpless. And I'll tell you how important it is to understand that you're helpless. And it's just a fun coincidence Right now, a fly has gotten into my house and has flown into my room and is sitting on my windowsill. And every single 
or every few minutes or so, this fly comes up and he's flying at that window and he's flying his little fly ass off. He is given 100% of his fly effort to getting through that window because he cannot comprehend that it's a wall. To him, it's clear, looking through his little bug eyes. There's no reason I shouldn't be able to fly out there. And if I just try hard enough, I'll get out there. Unless I take pity on this fly and either catch it and let it go, not likely, or smack him with a, something and kill him, this fly will expend his life's energy attempting to accomplish something that's impossible. This fly has many other choices in his little fly existence right now, even though they don't live that long. He could just turn around 180 degrees and fly back through the house and accept the confines of the house, And he would have a pretty good existence here. I could fear he could find another fly to hook up with, and he probably could even find something to eat. He might not be able to reproduce very well, but he could have an existence. And if he flew around and took that opportunity and established an understanding of the containment system, he might realize that there are things that open called doors, and he wouldn't even call them doors because flies don't have English language. But he might notice that this drafting thing happens with those little hairs that makes them hard to kill unless they're on anything but a window when they're confused, and then realize I can get out and go be a fly again. So... What do you think the fly is going to do? I, I I reckon if I don't do anything tomorrow, if I come in here, there'll be a dead fly on my windowsill I'll have to clean up. And he's still there right now. I'm watching him. All this talk, and he's still there. This is the American who's going to vote harder next time. That's, that's who this is. This is. This is the person who's going to try to convince others to follow their line of thinking before they've started walking the walk that goes with the thinking. If you walk the walk, then others follow you. If you talk about that you're going to do it someday, nobody believes you because you haven't done it yet. This is freedom. The belief that if we had a system that was better, you'd be more free, if you haven't already maximized the freedom that you have, is false. I want you to think about it that way. Let's say I locked you in a house, and because you were locked in a house, you refused to leave one room. If I open the front door of the house, you're not going to even know it because you won't leave the freaking room. If I put you on a property that's 30 acres and surrounded with prison wire and concertina wire and things like that, but you do have 30 acres and you have a lot of resources and you could have a pretty happy life on this 30 acres. You'd be contained, you'd be unhappy about it because psychologically you'd know it's wrong. But if there were friends and family to interact with, other people, you had all the things that you wanted, you could have a happy existence. But if you decided because of that 30-acre fence, you were so unhappy that you were not even going to leave the house that you were given on that 30 acres, what the hell's the point If I go out there, I'm still going to run into the damn fence. If somebody tore the fence down, you wouldn't know. And if there was a hole in the fence that you could slip through and get yourself into an additional 100 acres, it wouldn't be a lot more freedom, but it would be more than twice the freedom that you have right now, but you would never find it. If you did see it and you saw other people slipping through it and you realized, but there's just another fence on the other side of this one and there's only a little bit more space out there, you might not find that that second fence also has a hole in it, a crack, a sliver. And you wouldn't carve out for yourself the, 
freest life and freest existence and greatest opportunity for escape that you possibly could have. Instead, you would live bitter and contained by things that don't even really contain you. As real as the fence is, the false boundaries that are much smaller than the fence contain you more than the fence that itself. Many people in the liberty movement, this is how we're living today. We're living that way. It's true. All the things we say about being overtaxed and overburdened and overrestricted and people spying on you and the horrible things that we're doing by using force against other nations in the world, all of it's true. How dumbed down the population has become, how the prisons are pseudo, uh, sorry, the prisons, the schools are like minimum security prisoners and their prisons and they're programming our children to think that the state is God. It's all true. But it doesn't have to be for you, and it doesn't have to be for the people that you really care the most about. If you can't convince somebody, live your life and prove it. Maximize the freedom that you have before you complain about the freedom that you don't have. Are you using every bit of the freedom that you have? Are you working the system against itself? If you don't like being taxed, you figure out how to build a business and you figure out how to take a whole bunch of the money that they're taxing now and run it through that business. And since you're not an employee, instead you're an owner of a sole proprietorship, it's not compensation, it's an expense. And since it's an expense, you don't pay taxes on it. In fact, it reduces your taxes. You don't like the fact that you live in a state that has a state income tax of 7, 8, or 10% like some states do? Then pick your ass up and move. I know it can be hard. I know it can be difficult. But if that's really the problem, then do it. See, I think the problem is a lot of people today in the liberty movement who are not happy and who are not overall successful in their lives are using the truth that we're oppressed in many ways as an excuse for not maximizing their own freedom and thereby using it as an excuse for their inability to build a life with meaning and with success. And all I can say is if you look around you, there are plenty of people that have built a life with meaning and success. There are people that have lifestyle businesses like I do, but there's people that are worth millions and millions of dollars. And they're not all sellouts. They're not all people that are working crony capitalism through the Congress. Some of the biggest outsiders on planet Earth are multimillionaires. A few of them are even billionaires. Why? Because they realize that even though that fence was real, I'm damn well going to use every square inch of the containment area. And they found a crack, and they got out a little bit more. And they got out a little bit more. Now, it might be true that there's an eventual fence that for now we are confined by. But I'm not going to stop pushing until I've pushed on every inch of that one because I might find there's another layer that I can escape into. This is freedom. It is this mindset. It's not just freedom is in your mind. That oversimplifies it. It's this type of thinking. To understand what's really been done to us, the human species has been made into cattle. Cattle are easy to domesticate. They domesticate very, very quickly. And cattle do not go feral by choice. If cows get out, they try to figure out how to get back in after not very long because they know that they're going to be taken care of. And cattle don't want to run away. They don't want to get away from people. You can see all those cowboy movies or whatever you want, but if you've ever been around cattle that have been cared for you know, in a good way, you can walk right up to them and pet them. They don't run away from you. They're not afraid of you, and they don't try to kill you. 
If you fall over in front of them, they don't run over, stomp you to death, and eat you. Try that shit with a pig and see what happens. Yeah, a pig. The human species was designed to be a pig. Don't take it offensively. I don't mean it like being a, a, a hog. I mean being a pig, like thinking like a pig does. A pig lives its life. It pretty much eats, fights, makes more pigs, rolls around on the ground, feels good. If something feels good, it does it. It doesn't go out of its way to harm other creatures or do harm to other things. Some of the stuff it does is harmful, but it doesn't do it because it wants to be harmful. It doesn't kill some unless it wants to eat it. And when it wants to kill and eat, it kills and eats. It pretty much gets along with its own kind. It might fight occasionally over certain things, but overall, it gets along. They live in packs. They don't live in herds. They live in small packs and small groups. When they're cold, they lay in the sun. When they're hot, they go in the mud. Sound like a hunter-gatherer to you? That's human beings. That's what we're supposed to be. If you put a fit pig on a ranch, 30 acres with a fence, and you let a crack in that fence big enough for that pig to get out, that pig will get out, and it will go feral. It will go as feral as it can on whatever is on the outside of that fence. And if it's contained there, it will keep working, it will keep looking, and eventually it will find its way out. The cow, however, will, will willingly walk into a barn and allow a human to take its milk. That human is the IRS and the other government agencies that take your money. If you want to be free, you have to stop being like the human cattle and be the pig that you are. Now that sounds funny, but it is true. Keep that in mind until we, we get to our closing song. Next up, I want to remind you, if you like the show and the work that I do, if it helps you in your daily life and your education, consider supporting us back by joining the Members Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. Uh, when you do... Uh, you will see how to sign up. You'll also see over 60 companies that give you discounts on products you're probably buying anyway. It'll more than pay for your membership. It comes out to, again, about 18 cents an episode. That's $50 a year or 5 bucks a month. If you've been thinking about it, try it for 5 bucks a month. See if you like it. If you don't like it, cancel it. If you do like it, keep it or convert over to a one-year account. Help support the work we do. Next up, the other way you can support the work we do is by going to tspaz.com. That's all you got to do. Go to tspaz.com and do that when... Anytime and every time that you're thinking, I'm going to go to Amazon and buy something, or I'm thinking about buying something on Amazon. And when you go to T-SPAS, you will see a, uh, a list of links on the Survival Podcast. One will say to shop at Amazon, and for any and all items, just click here. Click that button if you're just going to shop. If you're not interested in anything I'm reviewing or anything like that, get on over to Amazon and buy the stuff you're going to buy anyway. It doesn't take any really extra work. You type in one less letter, you make a click to make up for that extra letter, shop on Amazon, we get credit for it. I mean, that's the easiest way I could ever set up for you guys to support the show. If you want to see our item of the day, click on see the current item of the day, item of the day click here. And today's item of the day is pretty cool. It is the, uh, the, uh, the Camelback Mule Backpack. This is a three-liter hydration backpack with a reasonable amount of capacity. And I have, it's kind of cool, I have a video at the bottom of this of me reviewing this thing six years ago. Six years ago. I still have this Camelback Mule. They've made some upgrades to it since then, but it's pretty much the same pack. And mine's six years old, and I use it all the time. That says some. So you can read that review. You can get that through tspaz.com, or you can just do your regular shopping on Amazon, and you can help us out. 
Uh, next up today, remember you can uh, shop at tspbiz.com as well. That's a business directory for all of the small businesses inside the TSP community. Today's featured business uh, directory supporter is Schaefer Select Coins. They provide rare, rare numismatic coins and currency. They're located in Central PA. Or you can visit their online store through their link on the TSP directory. And you can tell I'm from Pennsylvania because I say PA instead of Pennsylvania. I don't know. I don't know anybody else that, that you know, says, uh, we don't say in Texas, you know, we're, I'm from TX. Or if you're from Ohio, I'm from OH. I have heard people say that they're from FLA, right, for Florida. And there is a song that says GA for Georgia, but I don't think people generally say that. But PA, we used to say that all the time. So uh, just, a, just a little kind of a funny thing there. With that, let's uh, talk about our, our closing song today. I, I got another Kid Rock song for you guys today. Uh, and I know some of you don't like Kid Rock, so this will be the last one for a while. But I, I don't know how anybody can listen to this song and not like it. It just sounds awesome, and the sentiments of it are awesome. And it's called Born Free. And I figured it would tie really well in with the uh, with the, with the, the, the final segment of the show today that we talked about with Freedom. And I've got a graphic on the, uh, the show notes today. And I just got, I guess I'm on the office space kick too. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, uh, two guys, uh, Michael and I can't remember the other guy's name, the Indian guy, um, the programmers who, uh, who, co who commit the heist at, uh, at the office space, right? And they're talking to each other. And, uh, the one guy says, if you don't like the government, why don't you just leave? And then Michael's the other guy he says, uh, Why, no way, why should I leave? They're the ones who suck. And, of course, in the movie, his name is actually Michael Bolton. And he's upset about it because everybody thinks he's related to him because he has the same name. And he said, the guy says, actually, in the scene, why don't you change your name? He's like, no way, why should I change my name? He's the one who sucks, right? So, but, I mean, the sentiment, like, that that's part of freedom. Like, you know, that's what people say, too, when you say you're not happy with the way things are today. Well, if you don't like it, why don't you leave? Why don't you go to Somalia? What? What the hell does Somalia have to do with my complaint that our nation's not free enough? But the government won't leave. And the people that, that assist with many of the restrictions in life won't leave. But we shouldn't leave either. And we should live as free as we can right where we are. And I thought this should be a kick-ass song and a kick-ass sentiment to send you, in your weekend, send you into your weekend with. So with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.